they were there when history was made. Rackham Tour is a storyteller. Welcome to the Sports Rackham Tour. And with two out, you talk about a roll of the dice. This is it. Lewis gets it to LeBron for three for the win. Yes! LeBron James at the buzzer! The Sports Rackham Tours dusts off the great American art of storytelling. From the players, coaches, media, the people who were there. Smith corks one in the right, down the line, it may go! Go crazy, folks! Go crazy! It's a home run! Go crazy! Now, here's Stephen Maggi. Welcome to Sports Rock and Tours, a show that presents the observations, recollections, and memories of a select group of storytellers who represent the past half-century or so of American sports. It wasn't always easy to be a woman and cover sports in this country. Some of the first had to overcome obstacles like limited access to players and coaches. Let's meet one of the very best. We all have dreams when we're kids, and years later we can assess whether we were successful at it or not. Well, Leslie Visser is with us, and you want to talk about successful, get this, 28 Super Bowls, 34 Final Fours, 12 NBA Finals, 7 World Series, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. And Leslie, you always wanted to be a sports writer, which I think is interesting. Could you ever have envisioned that you could have done so much over all this time? Thanks for having me, Steve. Everyone thinks you're terrific, and now it's my turn. But uh, I, I had no notion other than... I was a kid who was passionate about sports. You know, other people are passionate about music or poetry, and I just love sports, and I wanted to cover them. And when I was 10 years old, when I told my mom that, uh, she asked me, what do you want to be? And I said, I want to be a sports writer. And instead of saying, oh, girls can't do that, you can't do that, she said to me, that's great. Sometimes you have to cross when it says don't walk. And it, it gave me permission. I, uh, it's the title of my book about breaking barriers. But uh, I never had a dream of TV for me was Walter Cronkite, Huntley Brinkley. But I did go to the Boston Globe, which won the best sports section in America every single year. I remember that time because I was just getting in the business and there was out in the Bay Area, there was a, a writer. Her name was Stephanie Salter. And I remember the abuse she had to take and how difficult it was to go into those locker rooms and do those things. I assume you went through all that sort of stuff because there was a, a definite pushback when uh, women started to come into the locker rooms. The Boston Globe made me the first woman to cover the NFL as a beat in 1976. So for my first seven years, there were no provisions for equality, and I stood in parking lots to do all the interviews. You know, it was, I was so grateful to have the job that I never complained. And the Boston Globe, I mean, they sent me, I'd go to Wimbledon. I did Wimbledon with Bud Collins. I did the World Series with Peter Gammons. I did the NBA Finals with Bob Ryan. And the NFL, Will McDonough was, um, I wrote for the Boston Evening Globe, and he was, of course, the legendary morning writer. Matter of fact, I was at the Raiders the day our beloved Will McDonough died, and Al 
Davis, of course, called me up to his office, and we both just sat there and cried. It was uh, just so enormous to lose somebody of yeah. Will's stature. But, uh, yeah, so at first I used to have to stand in the parking lot, and I'd have to make a decision. Okay, let's see. If I try to grab Steve Grogan for a quote, am I going to miss Terry Bradshaw getting on the bus? Because it wasn't, you know, in locker rooms, a lot of people don't even do the work. They just stick the microphone, you know, yeah, sort right. of in the <laughs> middle. But I had to do 100% of the work myself, all the questions, keep the quotes. This is before people even use tape recorders. So it was a great, great learning experience for me. I had to cover games on deadline, so I had to knew, know what I was looking at. In fact, it's, it's ironic, but the best people to me during that time were the black players, and I don't know how far back you go in the NFL, but I used to go over and watch tape with Sugar Bear Hamilton. You'll remember he was oh, the yeah. guy called on uh, Ben Dreif's call on Sugar Bear against Stabler in the 76 wild card. I used to go over to Sugar Bear and Tony McGee, a couple of the players, and they would play film of the defense for me to say, okay, this is the responsibility. Most people play a uh, 3-4, or here's what you do in a 4-3. I really had to learn the game, and, you know, in some ways, the restrictions on me were to my benefit. Yeah, it, it actually made you better. I, that makes a lot of sense because you had to do some of the work because there were a lot of people that used to just go to the locker rooms and they'd let other people ask questions. And Now, it's great to hear that the players were, were with you there, or at least some of them were. How about the, your fellow uh, writers and broadcasters? Were, were they pretty supportive initially? Oh, yeah. All the, actually, not all the players were. Uh, I'll tell you a couple of stories. But, yeah, the writers were great. I think because the Globe was such a big, muscular, talented group. I mean, everybody, they all were in Halls of Fame. Um, Sports Illustrated voted the 10 years that I was at the Globe, not because of me, but they got voted the number one sports section in history. So everyone was really confident. It wasn't, it was competitive to be a great writer, be a great reporter, but not necessarily with each other. So I loved working at the Boston Globe, but it was so unusual. Uh, you know, they had no ladies' rooms when I started in the NFL because, of course, there weren't other women. So I used to have to sit there, you know, like Patriots would have the ball first and 10 on their t own 20, and I'd have to go down the elevator across the field, like, you know, like I was Usain <laughs> Bolt, and then try to get back up. And Chuck Fairbanks, you know, he didn't, I look like I was from Mars to those people. The first question I ever asked Chuck Fairbanks about one of his linebackers, I was very nervous. I was 23 years old. And uh, Chuck looked at me, like narrowed his eyes. You know, he was so stoic. If you remember him from either Oklahoma or the Patriots. Yeah. And uh, the first thing he said to me was, why don't you ask my daughter to go to lunch? You're about the same age. <laughs> I think part of it is working with the Globe, like you said, when you did get into television, I remember that. Nobody was questioning, well, well, she just got on because she's a pretty face or something. You had the cred to back it up. Yeah, there was nothing that um, CBS put on the air that I hadn't covered. I'd covered 10 U.S. Open tennis covered the Olympics, I'd covered the World Series, I'd done Final Fours. I don't know wherever those numbers are, but now I think I've covered 30. My first Final Four was 1980, so is that almost 40 Final Four? Yeah. My first one was, uh, 
I just missed Magic and Bird, of course, in 79. And 80 was uh, Denny Crum, who played for UCLA, against UCLA, when Larry Brown was the coach, the doctors of dunk for Louisville. So, yeah, there was nothing that CBS put on, but I had no no television experience. The two great executives from CBS were Ted Shaker and Neil Pilsen, and they said they'd had a woman who knew television, the great Phyllis George, but they didn't have someone who knew sports. So this time they wanted a woman who knew sports, and they would teach me the TV. Yeah, it's been both have been a great run. How important was Phyllis George? Because she was actually, you know, the first one out there, and there became an acceptance after she did that with the NFL Today. Yeah, no, she was enormous. She was a friend of mine. I first met her in 1976. The Patriots got off to a great start. They beat, like, Oakland, Pittsburgh, Miami, all the gold standard teams then. So she came with the NFL Today to do a story, I think, on Chuck Fairbanks. Uh, Phyllis, for those of us who are writers, Certainly, since I was the first, but the group that came after me, which were just brilliant writers, it was Sally Jenkins, Chris Brennan, uh, Michelle Himmelberg, and all of us, we wanted to be writers. Uh, Phyllis, it was a different aspect. She was great at doing features, great at bringing people out, great at making them feel at home, and she was charming, but you know, she wasn't going to diagram a safety blitz for you. And I think the group of writers... Our interest was really in covering the sports, you know, knowing the difference between Syracuse's 2-3 zone and a box and one. So uh, Phyllis was um, just great to be not just a visible face, but charming and accessible and really a giant in our business. So when you were first in, did you kind of have to look the other way when somebody would do something? You know, something that was kind of offensive is just kind of ignore it and kind of have to do kind of what Jackie Robinson did in the sense of, you know, no matter how much you want to fight back, you just can't. Well, yeah, it was a different time. It's not really my nature. I'm kind of, uh, my family moved quite a bit when I was young, so I'm used to sort of fitting in, getting along. I would try to use humor as my default mechanism. You know, a player would... You know, I'm still to this day, everybody gets the yo baby, yo baby thing. And I would just say, you know, your mother did not teach you to talk like that. (laughs) (laughs) And when I went to television, the great Brett Musburger, uh, he was, they were really kind to me when I went to TV. I, I drove many, many times cross country with John Madden on his bus. And, you know, John would put up the Redskins counter tray and I would have to know exactly what he was doing. And you know, John would play it over and over and over before we stopped for Mexican food. I, I would have to say, um, once I got to television, it was very, very comfortable. You know, the pressure of TV is enormous, but the environment was comfortable. You know, you mentioned John Madden, and I got to know him just at the end of his Raider coaching career. And, of course, when he got into the broadcasting side, and then who knew he was going to become a, a, a video game magnet as well. But great guy. Was he helpful in terms of, he loved to always explain the game. So if you had a question, was he one of these type that will sit down with you and really try to explain it to the greatest detail? Yep, 100%. He was, he was magnificent to know. And it was such a privilege. People would say to me, well, you know, why are you, why aren't you flying to the 49er game? I'd say, because, you know, I have a chance to uh, be on that bus and learn things. And just everything about him was an observation. You know, he would, uh, he would look out the window on I-10 or wherever, you know, if we were coming from the Cowboys up north, and he would just look out the window and he'd say things like, dark chocolate, 
<laughs> uh, yeah, you can hear it, right? Yeah. I, I don't get it. It It's like they got halfway to milk and quit. <laughs> yeah, it's great stuff. Well, you went through kind of the the evolving of uh, sports broadcasting because back when when you first came in and so forth, then guys like Madden got in there. He really changed the way like like color analysis went, right? I mean, all of a sudden there was personality, but you didn't lose anything in terms of knowledge. Well, there's a reason no one can imitate him. I mean, really, he's sui generis. If they had a uh, you know Mount Rushmore, he'd be up there with you know Vin Scully, Costas. I think Jim Nance, I I think he just made it so relevant and he broke it down so you could understand it. And then you're right. And then he'd also throw in, remember the time he telestrated, he said a candy bar wrapper fell out of Nate Newton's uniform (laughs) and he telestrated it. So he was everything, you know, he was witty and quick and brilliant football, brilliant mind. I don't think there were many like him, but Al McGuire was great. I got to work with him a uh, little bit on the NCAA tournament. And all those guys that are singular uh, have just something that cannot be imitated. Was anybody a particular mentor to you when you got into the broadcast side? I mean, you said the network worked with you to get you great on camera. But was there anybody that just kind of worked with you over time and there was somebody you could always make a call to if you had a question? No, by the time you get to the network, you're supposed to know it, which my circumstances were just unusual. Uh, no, it was, um, you know, I, I look like I had rigor mortis in the beginning. So I'm, I'm sure Ted Shaker and Neil Pilsen were like horrified the first few times. But what I did was I made a pact with myself and with CBS later on Monday Night Football. I went to ABC when CBS lost uh, the NFC to Fox. And I made a deal that I wouldn't have anybody ever write for me. I mean, I'm in the Sports Writers Hall of Fame, so and I've written on deadline for a decade. So I said that everything that comes out of my mouth, I will feel comfortable saying. That if I have an opinion about the Green Bay linebackers, then it's my opinion, not what someone else has written for me. So I think that greatly helped me that I just, I said what I thought, what I thought I knew. I would check it, you know, I'm been pretty responsible reporter sure i had the facts right but i think that's what helped me it, it's definitely the writer's background helped me was there a challenge kind of to go from your great writer and then all of a sudden now you've got to write for broadcast which is a different type of writing did did that initially did you have to like think about it before you started writing for when you were going to read something i would read it off my mind because most of my career has been live so i got pretty quickly that you had to reduce a lot of what someone said to do the report, you know, or ask the question. Uh, no, I got that, and that came from writing on deadline. What I what I did have to learn was the technology. Like, uh, you know, we all learn growing up that when else speaks, you stop speaking. So I'd be interviewing Martina Navratilova, and the producer would speak in my ear, and I would just stop. Oh, yeah. yeah that takes getting <laughs> so, used to, huh? I mean, that really, yeah. people have no idea how hard that is. Well, it's, yeah, it's definitely a skill. And so then the producer would be screaming, you know, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I, I'm sure I looked like my eyes were pinwheels, you know, on television because I, I had to, yes, you have to learn to speak while someone's speaking to you. So I had to learn some of that, you know, the technology of it. But the, the reporting wasn't difficult or finding uh, the words weren't difficult for me. Knowing what to wear was difficult. I don't know if you remember, maybe some of your listeners, I had a really bad hat phase, really bad. <laughs> I remember a game, a playoff game in, uh, I think it was Giants-Bears or 
uh, one of the giants in the mid-80s, and uh, the producer came screaming out of the truck. Now, you know how cold it is at Soldier Field. Like, it's no degrees. So I had this beautiful blue hat on, and the producer came screaming out of the truck and said, take that hat off. It looks like a satellite dish. Also, it takes a lot of guts. Are there times when you got to go to somebody at halftime, a coach. Now, they know you're coming. They know it's part of their job. But it's tough when you've had a bad half and you got to go over there and ask them a question and put that microphone in their face. Are, are you always kind of like, well, how can I ask a question that's not so obvious that I'm going to get them to scream, but yet address the issue at hand? Yeah, it's a little bit of a dance. They know it's coming. I mean, what I started doing was actually, and I, I, I see this a lot now, uh, I started going to the coach off camera and putting it into, I called it, you're making a Picasso out of a matchstick because <laughs> they want to get to the locker room. They're like, we have to put pressure you know, on the quarterback. Yeah, okay. But I remember one game, maybe it was a Patriot-Detroit game, and uh, so Belichick, he's coming off the field. And, you know, I asked him the question. And so, you know, I've known him so long now. You know what I, I did, Steve? I cross-eyed in of my asking the question. <laughs> so we had to laugh. I mean, it was like, I know it, you know it. Yeah, I just looked cross that. Well, that's but, a great uh, idea. <laughs> yeah, it was a great idea. Yeah, it was, I mean, he, yeah, he laughed. But, uh, you know, most of those coaches, it's a chance for the audience to see them. And once in a while, they'll say something great. But I think mostly they're, you know, you can almost fill in the blank of what they're going to say. And that's what I think makes your job so difficult because you don't want to get that, but they're so conditioned to give the, uh, yeah, we just have to play a little bit harder, play our game and all that kind of thing. And that's why I think that's a great idea. So are you constantly thinking in your head too? I mean, that's the hard part about doing live work. We were talking before about writing in your head. You want to come up with something clever and if you can catch them off guard, sometimes that's when you get the good stuff, I would imagine. Yeah, and you can't ask questions. So you have to say, what was the difference? Not, were you happy with the first half? What What was your offensive line doing to create the openings for the running back? Or you, you it, the more specific that you can ask the question, if it works, it'll lead to a more specific answer, which is what you're going for. So yeah, you have to you're constantly revising up until the second you speak to the whoever it is. In any sport, you're constantly revising what you're going to ask to try to elicit the best answer. You know, you see the ones, the ones that you think are good are good. Would you have any favorites? I mean, you've you've covered everything. I, the only thing, I, have you ever covered hockey? That was the only thing I didn't see on this huge list of, of great events that you've covered. I mean, is there anything I've missed? Uh, yes, I did, uh, a, you know, a fair amount of hockey because the Bruins are so big in Boston, but I was really an NBA, NFL, baseball guy, mm -hmm. college basketball. I was actually Rick Pitino's beat writer when I was the 21-year-old writer at the Globe, and he was the 22-year-old coach at Boston University. All seven of Rick Pitino's <laughs> Final Fours. I'm great, great friends with him. So... I feel like in every sport, I mean, I guess a lot of people, if they know me, it's more for the NFL. But uh, um, Billie Jean King was one of my idols, and I've become great friends with her. And then I have a lot of college basketball friends. So it's sort of, uh, I've, I've been blessed to actually not just hit and run, but really be in a sport for a long time. What about, you know, people always wonder, like, do you find out some stuff that you don't write about? And 
did you have that where some people would tell you something in confidence and you have to say, like, well, it would make a great story, but I can't do it? Oh, yeah. Once I was interviewing Lawrence Taylor, who was my favorite player in the history of the NFL. I just loved um, I loved watching him. I loved knowing him. I loved I loved the Bill Parcells, you know, who was so, so yeah. tough and so great. And Bill Parcells would say, bus leaves at 10 unless LT is a few minutes late. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I, I loved LT. And one time we sat down and, you know, LT had a, so many off the field issues. And I said, I said, LT, what, you know, what is wrong with you? And he said, Leslie, you know what's wrong with me. My drug dealer lives five minutes away and takes American Express. And, you know, it was, it was funny. It was sad. It was pathetic. And I said, LT, I'm actually not going to use that. I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> well, Leslie, it's been a privilege to have you on. We want to have you on again. Thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Steve. It was a pleasure. Go to the Vegas Never Sleeps website and check out the Sports Rockin' Tour page. There you can hear bonus content from this conversation, plus a number of other great sports stories. And don't forget to follow us on all social media platforms, including Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Thanks for listening today. This is Stephen Manchin. Okay, Sean, we need to talk about our training budget. We're spending almost $1,500 per employee each year. What's the plan? Well, ma'am, 42% of companies are saying that e-learning has led to an increase in revenue. What does that do about the travel expense? E-learning allows employees to learn wherever they are. Then we need to consider the time away from production. I heard that e-learning takes up to 60% less employee time than traditional classroom training. Perfect. Let's find a curriculum company, a development company, a learning management software company. Actually, Epsilon XR specializes in end-to-end learning solutions with tools such as instructor-led training, online classrooms, simulations, virtual and augmented reality, and curriculum development. Get Epsilon XR on the phone. Epsilon XR creates immersive learning environments that engage with your learner, resulting in improved information retention, which leads to better performance and ultimately an increase in revenue. Learn more at elearning.epsilonxr.com.